Tonight is Parshat Shlach. And we're going to learn a number of different Torahs. The first few are relatively short, and then they get longer as we, as we go on. But there's some incredible insights. The, the general principle of all Hasidic learning is that everything that we learn in the Torah has eternal relevance. Each generation will, will see it differently, but, and each person will see it differently. And each year we see it differently. But the main principle is that we always have to translate the teachings to our own reality. So having said that, the first, it's just it's an insight, it's not like a, a whole Torah, it's like a vort, is we see in the Parsha that the major disagreement that's playing itself out is can we make it in Eretz Yisrael or can't we? Simple, as simple as it is, that's, that's what the Machloket, the Ten came back and said the land is incredible, it really is it really is a land flowing with milk and honey and here are its fruits and uh, everyone's seen the pictures of the, you know, the, the staff the huge, you know, uh, grapes, and well, we see the grapes, but the Torah they also took uh, other fruits also, and they said it's, it's incredible, but we can't, we can't conquer it. They're too strong for us. And Yeshua and Kalev said, no, we can. So this appears to be like a one-time disagreement in the desert. You just look at the paper like every day for the last 40 years, mm-hmm. and it's it's the same machloket, the same disagreement. Now you have approximately, at least in Eretz Israel, half the people saying God gave us the land on a golden platter. We can we can hold on to it. We can settle it. It is ours. And the other half is we're, we're not strong enough. The, the world won't. The world won't let us. And you know the the machloket really isn't if Eretz Yisrael is ours. If you would go, I'm, I'm just uh, in a sense making up these percentages, but I would say other. I don't mean to. I don't want to get into politics, but this is the parsha. This, this, we would have to be, in a sense, blind not to apply it to our day. I'd say maybe other than five percent of what we'll call the far, far left wing. If you would ask anyone in the left wing or even the center, including those that that are ready to or even want to give back the the different territories. But if you ask them, is Yehuda and Shomron Eretz Yisrael? They would all say, yeah, it, it's Eretz Yisrael. 100% it's Eretz Yisrael. 
but for the sake of peace or because of the political climate or the reality in the world, it's not realistic to think that we can hold on to it. But if you just ask them, but is, but is it really ours? I would say 95% of the Jews in Eretz Yisrael, yeah, yeah, it's ours. It is ours. But for the sake of peace, for the sake of, like I say, world opinion or reality, we, we, we can't hold on to it. So even the spies, they weren't saying that this isn't the land that God you know, said, but they, we can't do it. We can't do it. They, they, had, they had a, a tremendous uh, lack of faith that God would, in a sense, carry His word out all the way to the end. I want to understand this. The, the spies they left were Kaddish Barnea? Where, where did they... They didn't come from the other side of the Jordan. They went inside. Yeah. So where did they go to, to cut down these huge clusters of We're grapes? told that they, they, they went all over the land. Up, up to uh, Tel Dan? How far did they go? I could imagine, yeah. yeah. It says that they really... They roamed everywhere. They roamed... They went all around Eretz Israel. In fact... Uh, on Tuesday night, Rob Ginsburg gave over a Torah <coughs> that, and I'm, I'm not even going to get into this debate because this would be a whole class in itself. When Rashi explains, when it says, Shlach Lecha Anashim, send for yourself, uh, it doesn't even say spies, it says men. It doesn't use the word spies. And then later it says that uh, Moshe sent them al pi Hashem, by the word of God. And yet the first Rashi says, based on the Gomorrah, God says to him, I'm not telling you you should send these people. If you want to, you send them. That's why it says l'cha, shlach l'cha. If you want to send them, send them. And if not, not. I'm not telling you to do this. And yet it says al pi Hashem. This is this would take an entire class to delve into how free choice and and divine providence work itself out in this story. But I'm 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 mentioning this because Rav Ginsburg said that one of the kavanas of Moshe Rabbeinu was that he sent all 12, and no one knew which portion of the land they would get. So when they walked around all of Eretz Israel, that's what I'm answering, because when he said, he said he, they walked all over, 40 days, that's a lot of time. They walked all over Eretz Israel. Yeah, yeah, 40 days. That's why we ended up 40 years in the desert. So a, 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 a year for a day, a year for a day. Spent 40 days. So you'll spend 40 years. He said, since, since none of the tribes knew which land would be theirs, all of them were looking at the land in a sense, in a state of unity. They weren't looking at it like, well, this is mine, and this I don't want, and this you know, maybe you should have. They were just looking at the land without a possessive... Uh, iron raw on it. 
in a sense. He said that's what Moshe wanted to accomplish, but it wasn't. It wasn't really accomplished. That was the problem. It wasn't really accomplished, but he wanted them, in a sense, to Kona, Eretz Yisrael, all of all of the tribes at one time. Yeah. Do you think maybe that implies that if they, if he had allowed the Yetzer to be more involved, that it would have it could have been used constructively, like they instead of having uh-huh. too high and ambitious goals, something that's a little bit more within reach of the Nassim, that maybe they would have been like, oh, this could be mine, this could be mine. That is a great insight. And it's just like, if you yeah. try to be too holy, you snap. And if you yeah. try to work with your Yetzer, you can accomplish something it, sometimes. And I can't answer, yes, that's correct or not correct, but that is, is, a, is a great insight. The great insights that maybe <coughs> Moshe set the goal too high for them, right? For for the, for who they were, and they couldn't live up to it. And because of that, it helped uh, plant the seed of uh, lack of, of faith. But the truth is, it's not so simple because before Moshe sends them, he gives he adds. A yud to Yeshua's name. We're going to get into this. Is the big Torah for tonight? This this yud. Hmm. And so, why is he adding? And it says, why does he add the yud? So Rashi says, so that Yeshua will be saved from the advice of the ten spies. So, if you think of the implication of that, Rashi, it's like. Wait a minute. It seems that Moshe had an inkling already that this was not going to turn out so good. So the plot thickens. But you think Moshe could figure out when Hashem said either send or don't send, that Moshe picked up that Hashem didn't want us to send, but if we insisted that he would go along with it. Yeah, that's the shot, yeah. He, he knew that once we, we insisted, like asking for a king for the wrong reasons, that we're already okay, on the yeah. wrong road. Yeah. Yeah, and that uh, you know maybe he went along with it, like Shmuel went along with it, um, and it also didn't turn out so good with Shaul. Is there a reason why it's ten and two rather than eleven and one? Yes. Yeah, we're going to see. Again, we'll have to be a little bit patient, but we're going to get to this yud. Why ten? Why ten? Okay, so that that's the first. Let's call it vort. Is just to point out something very simple. Is that when we, we, we hear about the Torah being eternal and it plays itself out in every generation, is this, this is such a um, stand-out kind of insight. Here we are, 3,300 years later, we turn to this Parsha, and it's like reading the news of the day. It is the exact same Machlok. And in fact, even this week, this week... There was a demonstration in Hebron, in Hebron, against 40 years of settlement of the land. By whom? Peace now. Okay? And, and, and Hebron fits into this also, because where did Kalev go to Davin that he would have strength to be able to, to not fall into the trap that the spies fell into? He went to Hebron. 
he went to Hebron to pray at, at, at the graves of Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, and Leah. So Dafka, do you hear how, how incredible the Torah is? Right? And the very week that Kalev goes to Hebron to Davin, that we should be able to come into Eretz Yisrael. So once again, it becomes the center point of this same machloket. Not only that. That's an awesome insight. Not only that, it's a 40 year anniversary since the Six Day War, and it got 40 years in the desert for the, for the Meraglim. Also, thank you. Thank you for adding that obvious thing, is that this is 40 years since we received a good part of Eretz Yisrael back, which is exactly the 40 years that we wandered in the desert because we didn't, we didn't have the faith. So this is, like, this is incredible. I mean, every week when we, when we try to plug in this idea that the Torah is eternal, it's not always as obvious. It just this point is just quite obvious. So I wanted to point that out. Then there's this idea, they say, let's go back to Egypt. That's what the people said. After, after the, the, the ten said, we can't make it. So it's kind of like, well, we believe them. We can't make it there. So what are we going to do? Live in the desert forever? Well, let's go back to Egypt. That's, that's, that was like, that seemed to be their alternative. So we are, when we learn this, the natural inclination for people is to say, how could they say such a thing? Like, like how, how could they say such a thing? They didn't see all the miracles. They didn't receive the Torah Sinai. They didn't see the splitting of the sea. They didn't see the defeat of Amalek. Like, but they did. Maybe the problem is they got accustomed to it and they knew that they weren't going to be living in a world of miracles anymore. They're going to live in a world of Teva. And that was so shocking. It's like a person who's out of prison, they have to find a job and no one wants to give them a job. They'd rather go back to prison. Okay, so that's, you're right. That, that is one of the, the explanations that's given over. That, that the spies, when they went into Eretz Yisrael, they realized that the miraculous uh, kind of life that they were living was would end, and they they would have to nitty gritty create a Torah society in Eretz Yisrael from the sweat of our brow. The only thing is, is God pro- had already promised them that He would defeat the enemies. Right. In other words, that that the wars, right? They kind of they kind of forgot that God had promised that. The wars would 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 be won miraculously, and then afterwards they would have to you know plant their fields and all of that kind of things. So, but that's true. That's true. But what I'm focusing on is our tendency to look at not just this complaint, all the complaints, and say how could they? But I'll just ask everyone. How many times are we stuck in a, let's say, a a not such good situation in our lives? And we're given different opportunities, or we know that we can take different opportunities to change that. And we prefer 
the known, no matter how bad that we think it is, to the unknown. This is a known phenomenon. And I'm sure there's, there's no one here who hasn't experienced it many times that we, we, we consciously and unconsciously choose um, a difficult situation because it's still easier than to face the unknown. So my vort is that we shouldn't be so quick to judge. Right? It's so much easier to look at all these complaints and say, how, how could I if I was there? But you know what? According to the Arizal and according to the, the understanding of, of Gilgul and reincarnation, we were there. We were the ones complaining. We were there. There, there were our neshamas. So we shouldn't be so quick to say, how could they say go back to Egypt? How many times have we um, started on a, a journey or a project or a goal and part way through, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for good reasons, but we decide like, can't do it, can't, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm going I'm to go back to where it's more comfortable. So, and I'm not judging us either for when we have to do that, because sometimes you take one step forward and two back, and then three forward. But all, my only point is we shouldn't be so quick to judge them when we do it all the time. We do these things all the time. And the truth is that's one of the ways to learn all of the complaints throughout the book of Bamidbar. Is, is we have to look deeply into what was their complaint. right? And what was their uh, predicament. I don't know of anyone who would go three days in the desert and also not cry out for water. It's, it's not so simple, right? Six hours. <laughs> right, not so simple. Not so simple. Okay, the next vort, and Daniel, I had you in mind with this. It's not completely thought out, I have to tell you, but um, I'm saying this uh, especially for you because Daniel and I like discussing the connection of Torah and science. So there's a very, very well-known Rashi that when the spies come back and the people appear to believe them, it says they all stood at their tent and they were crying and they said, let's go back to Egypt. So Rashi brings from the Gemara, he says, I'm paraphrasing, you're crying tears for nothing. I promise to bring you into the land. God is speaking. I promise to bring you in the land and here you're, you're standing at your tents crying for nothing. In the future, I'll give you something to cry about on this day. You heard that from Archie Bunker too, right? So everyone knows what, what day we're talking about. Which day are we talking about? Tishabov. That was the day that they stood at their tents and they cried and they said, let's go back to Egypt. And so that's what Rashi is saying. This was Tishabov. And what will we cry in the future? The destruction of the first temple, the destruction of the second temple, Beitar, 
the Spanish Inquisition, the uh, all the different things that happened. The Mishnah, the invasion of Kuwait, the, the invasion of Kuwait in, in the Gulf War was 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 the tenth of Av. Um, there are many dates in World War One and World War Two. Expulsion from Gush Katif. Yes, the, the, the expulsion from Gush Katif happened right after Tishabav. Um, it's it's like it's uncanny. So the question is, how does this work? Right? It's it, 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 in other words, it's a known phenomenon about Tishabav. It's like I say, it's like uncanny. The expulsion from England. It's just there is a list that is it's just incredible. But w- but when you really think about it and you want to understand on a deep level, is like okay, so how does this work? Why? Because as far as we understand from a simple viewpoint, time is linear. There's past and there's present, and there's future. Once a moment passes, it never returns. So how does it work? I'm looking at the spiritual mechanics. How does it work that one day will attract these kind of tragedies? So there's two ways we can look at it. There's two ways. One and I'm going to say this very, very quickly. If anyone wants to look deeper, so look in, in Seeds and Sparks in, in the, the Secret of Cycles. And what it's based on is an idea that, that Rav Shlomo once said in the name of one of the Hasidic Rebbe's, it's not so much that we came out of Egypt because it was the spring, but springtime comes because we came out of Egypt. And so I wrote a whole lengthy discussion like, wait, that's counterintuitive. Spring came way before we came out of Egypt. What kind of statement is that? That because we came out of Egypt, there is spring? Okay, so I can't get into the whole understanding here, but the conclusion is, the conclusion was that the the cycles of of nature were created in a sense with man in mind. In other words, it's not so much that man fits into the cycles of nature. See, along with the cycles of nature, it comes time. But time exists the way that it does because it fits into a deep connection to the essence of the soul. And one of these hints is when in Parshat Hazinu, when Moshe says, God divided up the nations of the world, 
according to the son, uh, the, the, the sons of Yaakov. Meaning that the 70 archetypal nations correspond to the 70 souls that went down to Egypt. But you'll ask the same question. Wait a minute. The 70 nations come from Noah. This is before there were the 70 souls that came down to Egypt. How does that work? But the verse says that God set the inheritance of the nations according to the number of B'nai Israel. And it means according to the 70 souls that went down to Egypt. So again, you have the same thing. It seems opposite. So the answer is that it says, Yisrael Allah b'machshavat that when God wanted to create the world, the thought of Israel arose in God's mind first. So in, in that relationship, because God saw that there would be 70 archetypal Jewish souls, so therefore 70 archetypal nations were set even before those 70 souls actually existed in this plane. And that's why the first Rashi in the Torah says, for the sake of Torah and for the sake of Israel, God created the world. That's what Rashi says on Bereshit. In the beginning, it says, for the sake of Israel and for the sake of Torah, God created the world. So this seems like I'm going off field, but you'll see how I'm going to bring it back now. So... There's a similar idea when God gives the laws of Pesach. And he calls it a Leil Shimurim, a night of guarding. So what does Rashi say over there? He says that God was guarding this day from way before we came out of Egypt. Because the angels came to Avram to give him the news that he'd have a son on Pesach. And according to, I don't know, all opinions or some opinions, the Brit Benabitarim, the covenant of the pieces, was. When, when God gave the land to Avram Avinu, was on Pesach. So this is what it means, a, a night of guarding. In other words, this is the point I'm, I'm getting to. Already stamped into this day was a certain energy. Now we can understand it according to nature, because Pesach is a full moon. So we can say, ah, that makes sense. The full moon has a certain power to it. Isn't that the ironic? Because I thought in Judaism, it's when the, the moon is the sliver that it has the greatest power, because it's growing, it's uh, waxing, whereas when it's a full moon, then it's, it, it, it's already peaked, and now it's going to start to wane. You can look at it two ways. That's part of the machloket oh, okay. between Shammai and Hillel okay. as to which day is Tu Is it the first of Shvat when the moon is a sliver? 
or is it the 15th when it's full? That's part of the machloket as to when is, in a sense, the peak power, when it's just starting and it, it has all the growth to go, or is it when it's full, but then you have the seed of its becoming small again? That's part of that machloket. But the, the, the point here is that we can understand that certain days in the calendar have a certain power to them, and they draw events to them, right? So that's why we can understand Pesach is a, it's, it's the spring full moon. Nature is bursting with energy and freedom and, and redemption is in the air. So we can understand how Pesach comes then. But remember what we said that really because God crafted nature to fit into a higher cycle of what, what we call run and return, exile and redemption. That's why nature is the way it is. So all of that was to say that there's, that's one way to see how many events will turn out coming on the same day. Because it's a power vortex in nature. Okay? Everyone following me? Does that, that make sense? Okay? But there's another way to see it. There's another way to see it, which is, which is very different. And because Tishabav, it's, it's the ninth of the month. It's not a full moon. So it's much harder to say that's how Tishabav draws all these different things to it. Because there's something happening really in the upper worlds that gets translated or reflected into nature, which then draws certain energy or events to it. That's much harder to say about the ninth of Av. It's not a full moon. It's not a new moon. It's like... So here was the thought that I was thinking. I was thinking like this, that... Remember what Rashi says, is you're crying for nothing now. I will give you something to cry about. So now if we understand time, even though the way we experience time in our limited consciousness is being linear, time is not really linear. Not especially scientifically. Because time is intrinsically connected to light. And especially the speed of light. And as we've mentioned many times to explain many different things, when one approaches the speed of light, so time slows down, when one theoretically could arrive at the speed of light, no time passes. No time passes. The thing you left out is you also can only do so much when time slows down. It's not like you can operate in the way time is passing now when you're moving at the speed of light. Like 
you think, oh, if time is slowing down, then I can get more done. But you can accomplish thing. You can't accomplish things as quickly when time is slowing down either. That's that's my understanding from the book that you, you uh, suggest in the Brian Green that it's proportionate to what you can accomplish when that's slowing down. That not necessarily. Not Why? Because if someone went out into space and we're nowhere near this, nowhere near this, but if theoretically the spaceship was going close to the speed of time, he would come back a hundred years later, Earth time, but Earth time passed a hundred years and people did everything they did at normal time. And he comes back and he's four days older. <laughs> right? He left at age 36 and he comes back at age 36 and four days. They both experienced uh, time and he did all the things that he did out in space and everyone on earth did everything that they did but time didn't pass for him. In earth time it didn't pass. That's the mystery of, of, of the speed of light and time. So when you get to this... Ah, linear, you said time ah. isn't linear. The way we experience it is. In other words, a moment passes, yes. it's gone forever. But if you read... We somehow keep looping back to ah. Shabbat. Ah. Ah. So that, so, okay, so, so uh, I'll explain that there's three ways we can look at time. Linear, circular, right? Every year we have a birthday. Every year Rosh Hashanah comes around, every year spring, summer, fall, and winter. And we do experience time like this also. But then there's a higher level where we experience it as a spiral. Okay, and so here, here's, here's the idea. Now it is circular, a spiral is circular, but you never come back to the same place. You never come back. To, you, you always go in the circular and then... Let's say this is Tisha B'Av, right? So next year, Tisha B'Av is in the same place, one rung higher. And this is one rung higher. And this is one rung higher. So in other words, in that level of time, when an event is stamped into time, from our logic, it's like, okay, it passed. It's not going to affect that day next year because it's passed. That moment will never return. But if we look at time as being spiral, then it does return. That energy gets stamped into the time, which does return on a higher level. But to understand that, we have to understand how at the speed of light, all time becomes simultaneous. In other words, that's what we say about God. That for God, past, present, and future are simultaneous. So therefore, what we can understand from this Rashi is when God said, you're crying now for nothing, I'll give you something to cry about in the future, it really means your tears now will affect all future time on this day. Because why? From God's vantage point, 
all Tishabhavs in the future existed at that moment. They were all stamped with that crime. Did, 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 everyone, did everyone follow that? Yeah? It's not, it's not a simple concept. Not a simple concept, but since it's God saying, I will give you something to cry about, we're just trying to translate that into a, like a reality we can understand. What it means is that this moment that on one level will pass and never come back again, will also exist in the future simultaneously. And therefore, on Tisha B'av, this energy... I remember, what was it, two years ago, when Gush Katif was happening, everyone was just saying, like, we can't believe that this is happening on, like right around Tisha B'av. It's like... It's like it's, it's too uncanny. It's like too uncanny that this could actually be happening right around Tishabab. Yeah. So how can we how can we spiral upward? Because it sounds like in a certain way we're spiraling downward when we ah. you know. Ah, so the so the way we can do that is through chuva. Why? Because it says if you do chuva from Ahava you you return, you repent from love, you can, as it were, retroactively change the past. So that's the secret. See, the secret of tshuva is the same secret of time that we're talking about. Because when you read that Gomorrah, you ask the same question. Well, I, I don't understand. How can you tell me that I can change my past purposeful sins into merits. Okay, so the simple answer is because I'm doing tshuva, those sins I did in the past are propelling and motivating me now to change and do good things, and therefore it turns to merits. That's the simple understanding of it. But if you just look at the words itself, it says it turns past purposeful sins into merits. In other words, there is a level, there is a level, and it is counterintuitive, where by having a divine consciousness, which means that we can touch God's perspective of time that as it were we we could it's like a time machine we could as it were change our own past as it were we could change our own past and that comes to a, a different understanding of why we went through what we went through but we can only reach it there when we can step up the spiral and have a higher viewpoint, then we can look back over the things that we perhaps we cried over and get a new insight like, ah, that's why it had to happen. Then that actually changes the past for us because the past lives in us. All of us live with our past 
memories and guilt and uh, burdens. But if we can do tshuva from ahava and we get a different perspective of why we had to go through this, then we start looking at it differently. And that, in essence, changes the past. And it changes the past. But if we're doing it from, what I call, like I said, a linear viewpoint of time and consciousness, we can't do it. We have to step one step above and, in a sense, let divine consciousness enclose itself in us to be a channel for a higher consciousness. That's why it says about Avram Avinu when Avram complains and says, who's going to inherit me? And it says, and God took him outside. So remember we learned this. And the simple meaning, he took him outside of the tent because he wanted to show him the stars and say, as many as the stars are, that will be how many your seed are. And then it says, go outside of your astrology, which is telling you that you can't have children. Because you can't have children. Biologically, you can't have children. But I'm telling you, go outside of your biology. And then the third opinion, Rashi brings three opinions. The third opinion, it says he took Avram Avinu above the stars so he could look down. What does that mean? He took Avram Avinu out of what we'll call a human consciousness and he said, you know, I'm going to show you how this all is happening from the way I see it, from above the stars. And you can look down and see how it's all happening from up here. So just to end this segment, if you remember, we learned that on, on Shabbos, we're told that sages say, when you go into Shabbos, you should look as if all your work is done. You should put, not just put everything to the side physically, but you have to mentally. You're not thinking about that project, that work, that school, that problem. You put all your work to the side. So what that means is on Shabbos is, as it were, there's no past. There's no past. We're also told that on Shabbos you shouldn't be thinking about what am I going to do on Motsi Shabbos? What am I going to do next Tuesday? You're not supposed to make plans. You're not supposed to even think about it. So what does that mean? There's no future. So we learned that the secret to experiencing the bliss of Shabbos is all you have is the eternal present. You're just in the moment. There's no past and there's no future. But being in the moment is like being at the speed of light. There, 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 no time is passing. And we said that's why Shabbos is called the 60th of the world to come. Because we get a glimpse of what is it like to be there, that we're not crippled by our past 
and we're not in fear of our future. We're just enjoying the present. That's the secret of Shabbos. And so we learn that that, that is what I said, s- traveling at the speed of light. Shabbos is traveling at the speed of light. I'm sorry, you, you had a question before, and I... Um, so if you have a spiral, let's say, let's say you have a spiral on a diagram, and you would draw a line through the spiral, let's say from the center to, to, the, to the perimeter of the spiral. So, so in other words, every time a spiral would go through that line, you're saying like that line would be a, would be a day, like Tisha B'Av, for example. Yeah. Every time the spiral would go through that yes, line. Yes, but just one rung higher. Right. Right? Like here is Tisha B'Av, and you have to go through the whole year. But then you hit it over here, but you're this much You're on a different level. It's and, and that higher level is time, the linear time from our perspective. That's yeah, it's the linear time, but what I'm saying is the, 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 the past, present, and future are in every moment. And, and I, I'm saying all of this to answer how can it be that a day draws all these events to it? That's what we're trying to understand. We're trying to understand how that works. So I, I, I gave two possibilities. Like I said, like a more nature that in nature itself, and I just use the example of full moon or new moon, that certain days have a certain energy in them. That we can, that's easier to understand. But here we're proposing like a, 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 a more like divine plan of how these things work out um, that, that it could happen. It's interesting because the galaxy, they say the galaxy is like a spiral. Mm-hmm. Because the mm-hmm. stars go like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, just a little question. What about this time of the next cloud that it turned out to be such a What about all the other times they complain and cry and it's happened? Like, there are a million times where the next cloud doesn't happen. Okay, so that, that's a good question, but we're told that there, in almost all of Jewish history, there are, there are three cardinal sins. All the rest are also complaints. Is the spies, the golden calf, and the selling of Yosef. The selling of Yosef, we don't know what day that is on, as far as I know. I, I've never, I don't remember a day. But when is the golden calf? Is Yud Zion Batamuz? The same thing happened. In fact, the Mishnah in uh, in Tainus, Masechet Tainus says five things happened on Yud Zion Batamuz, and five things happened on Tishba. The same thing with with the, the the breaking of the tablets at the Golden Calf was called a cardinal archetypal sin. It's not like the other ones aren't important. But these were ones that affected every person in every generation. That's how it's treated by Chazal and Hasidus. That we're still feeling the 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 the, the, the reverberations. 
And, and we're told about Yosef uh, on Tishabav and Yom Kippur. We read the about the ten martyrs. Everyone, you know, this is the famous story of Rabbi Akiva and all the ten martyrs, and you know, it's a very emotional pew team on, on, on Yom Kippur and Tishabav. But according to the explanations, why did it happen? Is because the Roman uh, general used the excuse that the ten brothers who sold Yosef had never been had never been um, punished. So, like seventeen hundred years later, the ten martyrs in a sense, have to pay that off. That's what, this, what we're calling archetypal sins, that the reverberations are what we're trying to say. They, they, they lock themselves into time. And so what I propose, I'm not saying that this is the only way to look at it. I'm just saying this is a way to try to understand it. Because if not, we just look at the Midrash and say, okay, we know lots of things happen in Tisha B'av. And we don't go any further. But for someone who's like really wants to understand, you have to ask the next question. Like, okay, so how how does that work? What's the mechanics? What are the dynamics that make that work? So that was a proposal of an idea, and it came to me in a, like this a, a, literally a lightning flash. It came lightning flash. So um, it took me much more than a lightning flash to give it over, but it came in a lightning flash. Okay, now we're going to switch gears and give over really an incredible, incredible talk. When you look at the whole Torah, each book in the Torah, each parsh in the Torah, there are certain themes that you can pick out. In other words, if, let's say, someone wanted to write a book about free will, they would be able to go through the whole Chumash and the whole Tanakh and see a thread of how free will is a theme in every parsha. Uh, someone just approached me that they're putting together a website to give over Torahs about the ecology and the environment on each parsha. In other words, you, if you want to, you can see a theme that relates to the environment in every parsha. In Season Sparks, I wrote one about birth, the birthing process, and see how it plays itself out over and over again in all these different ways. It's the same thing in, in a particular Parsha. You can take a Parsha and, in a sense, isolate it and see certain th- a theme running through it. We know that one of the great mysteries in the Torah is that that we have in between mitzvot 
There's no explanation why this mitzvah is next to this mitzvah, which is next to the mitzvah, or this incident is next to that incident. Sometimes Rashi tells us, sometimes the Gemara tells us, why is this mitzvah next to this mitzvah? And they're beautiful Rashis. But most of the time, we don't know what the strands are. But when we have insight into them, it opens up the Parsha incredibly. So there is a theme in this Parsha that has to do with the letter Yud and the number 10. We're going to go through this Parsha and see it come over and over again. And, and it's, 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 it's an amazing thing. And at the end, I'll give you at least my impression as to why. Right, there's one thing to see a theme, but then you have to understand, well, so what is that theme doing in this Parsha? You, you already alluded to it in the beginning when you said this is the blueprint of all creation and the Sfirot, the ten Sfirot are the, um, I don't know how you describe the instruments of mm -hmm. creation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Anything with ten has to do with the Sfirot. Anything with ten. Uh, and actually, we'll see how that plays itself out. So I already mentioned that we could start from any number of different places. But we'll, we'll start like this. Is, is The first place that we see it is when Moshe sends Hoshea, and it says that he called him Yehoshua. Now, this is the same name as Hoshea, but a Yud was added to his name. And as we mentioned, the Rashi says this was in order to help protect him from the, the evil advice of the spies. Now the, the connection is obvious because there were ten, the, the twelve spies broke themselves up into ten and two. There were ten that came back with what we call the evil report. And Kalev and Yoshua who said, no, we can do it, we can go. So obviously, that, that Moshe gives him a Yud, which equals ten. We see that connection, it's just an obvious, obvious connection. What we'll do here is, I'm going to mention them, and then we'll try to you know, it's like, like put the puzzle together. So that's one thing that we have already. Now, we already just mentioned the ten brothers. There, it's, it's not a coincidence that in, uh, in two of the three archetypal sins, it, it's through the agency of ten. Yeah, the, 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 the ten brothers, even though, okay, Reuven went back, but okay, but Reuven told said to throw him in the pit. But that's how we break it up, is that Yosef and Binyamin weren't involved, and Reuven was only half involved, but nonetheless he, he, he was involved. So you have the ten spies and the ten brothers who sold Yosef. So that obviously there is a, a connection. Then you see a very interesting thing. 
when Moshe is praying to God to, to forgive the people, because God says the same thing he did after the, the, the golden calf. He says, I'll destroy the people, I'll make a new people out from you. So Moshe davens, and he says, Yigdal na koach Hashem. He's speaking to God and he says, May the power of God please become great. Yigdal, from the word gadol, Yigdal na koach Hashem. That the power of Hashem should be increased. The Yud of Yigdal is written big in the Torah. We have another Yud written big. Okay? As we say, the plot thickens. Right? We have all of these Yuds. And then, when God, in a sense, is I'm saying this uh, tongue-in-cheek, venting about B'nai Yisrael, he says, the people have tried me ten times. Like he's saying, like, when, is this, when are these people going to trust me already? They've tested me ten times. Yeah. Isn't it like when Hashem says, Salah Hadi Kizbarach on the 10th of. Isn't it like when Hashem has the first book to Shrey and then recovers the 10th book to Shrey? Yeah. So, like, is Salah Hadi Kizbarach referring to the Chayta Ego? Or is it referring to. Wait, wait, say that again, I'm sorry? What is um, when Hashem, Hashem says to Moshe, Salah Hadi Kizbarach? No, right here in this parsha. Chayta Ego? Oh, no, right here, right here. Like, cool. So it seems like that happens on the 10th of Tishrei, you know? Like, if Hashem has the first of Tishrei and recovers Ah, oh, beautiful. I have, I'm going to write that down. Alright? I'll quote you. That was very, that was very good, very good. Because in answer to Moshe's pleas, he says, "Salachti kedvarecha," I will forgive according to your words. And we say that on Yom Kippur many times, many, many times. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised if it turns out to be exactly ten times. But we say it's. I don't know. I'm just. I wouldn't be surprised. Though. Yeah, I'd look this high. I, I wouldn't be. You said it twice each to be loved. That would Okay, so another ten. Uh, not a, not a casual uh, connection, right? In other words, part of the. God is saying, I, I forgive them. When is the Day of Atonement? On the 10th of Tishrei. And that's when we say this, this, this thing. Okay, then... Okay, so did everyone get also this significant thing? God says they've tested me 10 times. Abraham. Yeah, so who does that remind us? Who else was tested? Avram was tested. But, but you, have, you have a mirror image here. Mm. You have a mirror image. God tested Avram ten times, and now it's God as if saying, you've tested me ten times. Mm-hmm. You've tested my patience ten times. So when you think of this is incredible, this is all in one parsha, right? 
All these tens and yuds are coming in one parsha. And then you have, at the end of the parsha, you have parsha tzitzit. When we, when we read about getting the fringes on, on, on four-cornered garments. And it says, in order that we d- won't go after our eyes, that we, we run after um, zonim. So interestingly enough, in the word tzitzit, it's written without one of the yuds. One of the yuds is missing from tzitzit. There's another one. There's another one. Right after God has pronounced the, the sentence of 40 years on the people, begins God giving a number of mitzvot that are connected to Eretz Yisrael. As if to say, you don't think that you can make it in there. I'm, I'm, here's mitzvot that, you're, that, that your children will do. Among them is a mitzvah that we do in Eretz Yisrael and outside. It's given, oh, and that's a challah. That in our day, when you make, what, 2.2 kilo of dough, you say a special bracha, and you take a portion. At the time of the temple, you would give it to a kohen. You would give it to a, a, a kohen. Today, we just wrap it up and put it in the oven and or dispose of it, but we say a bracha. So interestingly enough, and I know this very well because we, we crafted a whole program at the Moshav is years ago we used to bring uh, groups of uh, 7th graders, Israelis and we had a program called about mitzvot atliyot ba'arts, mitzvot that are connected to the land. We took them out to the fields and we explained about planting and the corners of the field and and, and plowing with an ox and a mule. We went through all the different mitzvah. Then we would take them back and they would make challah. They would make challah. And my wife used to do this all the time. She would, as they were making challah, she would explain to them, this is from the Shulchan Orach, and it's explained in the Mishnah Brura, that when you make hamotzi, there is a custom to put all ten fingers on the bread because there are ten mitzvot from the time that you plant the field to the time that you eat the bread. It's brought down in the Shulchan Orach and the Mishnah Brach, and my wife would go through the ten as they're kneading the dough. It was a very, very effective program. But Here's another ten in our parsha because here's the, the mitzvah of challah. And later we're told that before you can eat the bread, there's these ten mitzvot 
that we do, and that's where we put our ten fingers on the bread when we say hamotzi. It's a, bit, a beautiful kavana also. It's a beautiful kavana. Okay, so there's one more. There's one more. And this is a, a, a Torah from the uh, uh, Rabbi. He said that this parsha is called Shlach. Send. Very closely connected to this word is the, the word for a messenger is a shaliach. It's the same root, but what? With a, a yud in it. In other words, a shaliach is this root, three letter root with a, a yud in it. So, what's the yud in the shaliach? A messenger. In, in Jewish law, the shaliach acts as the person that he's a shaliach for. In, I guess in, in modern Hebrew, it's called a, a power of attorney. He can act for the person. The first example of a shaliach that's really mentioned in the Torah is Eliezer. Now, a very, when Avram sends Eliezer to find a wife for Yitzhak, what's interesting is, in the whole story, and it's, it's a, a huge story about how he goes and everything he said, and they said, and a whole thing, his name is never mentioned. So Rob Ginsburg once taught is that Eliezer was so nullified to the will of his master that his name isn't mentioned because as a shaliach he wasn't Eliezer. He was, as, as it were, Avram. So therefore his name is never mentioned. So the Yud is the letter of what we call Bittal. Why? Yud is the smallest of the letters. It represents making yourself small. So, this is what the ten spies couldn't do. I believe the Zohar says explicitly that the ten thought that if they would go into Israel, they would be replaced. Now, they were good enough to be, let's say, the, the leaders to be sent as, as, as spies, but they didn't, they didn't feel that they, if they went into Israel, they, they could maintain that. And so therefore, really, because they couldn't make themselves small, they didn't see a bigger destiny here. And they were thinking of themselves, so the report was was totally um, colored by their own paranoia, their ego. Mm. They, they, just, they, they, they weren't seeing the true picture. Mm. They, they were seeing a skewed picture because they couldn't make themselves a yud. Mm. They couldn't be a shaliach. They couldn't be a shaliach. So, speaking of the ten sviraot, so the Lubavitcher Rebbe said 
if you take the word shaliach and you add an extra yud, you have gematria mashiach. Shaliach is 348. If you add an extra yud, you have 358, which is Mashiach. So he said, what's the connection? He said that, uh, that the Mashiach will be, paradoxically, he will be the most, like Moshe, he will be the humblest of all people. He will be able to nullify his ego. That's the one yud of Shaliach. Did you catch that? Mm-hmm. And the additional yud is that he will be able to manifest the full ten powers of his soul, which are the Sfirot, which will make him Mashiach. So in other, in other words, his soul, he'll know the secret of nullification, and he'll also know that the, the secret of, of his soul will be full of godly energy, right? And I, I'm trying to reconcile the concept that we have as Jews of how important it is to do bitl yesh, to be humble. But at the same time, we all have a concept of like a talmid chacham and a king. They're not really supposed to, to uh, subjugate themselves or... To uh, humble themselves, right. that they're representing Torah, or they're representing right. kavod of of malchut, that help the people in some way through them, use them as a medium to connect to Hashem, and so the Mashiach seems to be the ultimate combination of kingship and Torah scholarship, and, and it just seems so inappropriate uh, that he should have to be so humble. It should be that the people should recognize his greatness, and. Um, and be drawn to Hashem through him. This, this is the paradox of David Amelach, that he was the, in his own eyes, he was the low, lowest of the low. Ayiti shafel be'enai. He said, I'm, I'm lower than a worm. And at the same time, he went out and he fought the wars of God with like, like, owes the, the Kedusha. Like, whoa, he was like, I am God's representative, and like, big time. And you're right, it's paradoxical. No, I, I'm not, like, I'm in no position to criticize David Melch, but I also wonder if his humility egged on the chutzpah type people like Doeg, or his son Avshalom, or like all these people, maybe they wouldn't have of tried to kill him or overthrow him if they felt that he was really expressing his malchud in a more gevuradik way. It seems like what you said, he did. He did. No, he ran from people. Like, if they insulted him, he said, don't kill them, and he could have had them executed. No, but he didn't run from them. He still... He did. And they made him run on his bare feet. He actually ran away? Yeah. Yeah, like and when he was on no, two he, hills outside of yeah. Jerusalem. Yeah, 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 yeah. He ran. Yeah, he had, yeah. He, he was stoned. Humiliated. Stones thrown at him. And he under, see, he understood at that point, it was Magia him from heaven. Okay. And he took it, but you're right, he was extremely passive yeah. after what happened with uh, Amnon 
and Tamar. And that egged on Avshalom. When Avshalom saw that he didn't deal with that, and he like just kind of like he didn't he didn't assert his father authority, that egg, that helped egg on Avshalom to overthrow him. I don't know how if I can and, answer you is like you know we we theoretically we could say the same thing about Moshe. How many times did the people want to stone Moshe? And you could say, well, if Moshe wasn't so humble. You know, maybe the people never would have had the chutzpah to say, let's stone him. <laughs> Could you imagine? Let's stone Moshe Rabbeinu, right? So, so yeah, it's like, it, it's very paradoxical to um, maintain an inner humbleness and on the outside assert a kingly authority. It's 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 a it's it's a tightrope. It's a it's it's a it's a blade. It's a blade to to pull that off, to pull off total humbleness, and yet be willing to stand up to the whole nation, the whole world, and like and assert your authority. Yeah. Isn't it many like? Isn't it that David Melech, that his humility was before Hashem, and and so when they like when uh, uh, he was going to be stoned, he 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 wasn't submitting to these people. He was submitting to Dr. Yeah, but I, yeah, yeah. But I think what most you're right, hundred percent. What most I, I think what Moshe is saying is that people could misconstrue that. Right, Moshe, Moshe, in a couple of parshas, like when Korach, he 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 falls on his face. Right, when Moshe come, when Korach comes with his, at first he falls on his face, and then he gets, yeah. I'm I'm not sure. I, I'm I'm just doing this on one foot, but. Um, yeah, in other words, it's just not an easy thing to do. I, I, I remember I once asked this in a different lavouche of Rob Ginsburg. I once asked him like this. I said, uh, especially because of, let's say, the, 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 the public position that I'm in a lot of times. So let's say I'm at a simcha. And uh, every, everyone, people are giving brachas to the chatanakala, the bar mitzvah boy, whatever. And it's like, you know, e- either I can tell that it's like expected of me, or even that I, I want to. And I come up with this, you know, like this incredible bracha, right? This incredible uh, Devar Torah. And then a thought comes in my mind. And the thought is, are you going to give this bracha now? Are you going to say this Torah now? Because you really, 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 from the bottom of your heart, want to bless this person? Or is it because, the, the, like, you know, the, the Torah will make you look good? So I asked Ralph Ginsburg, like, which voice is that? 
Right? Is that like a legitimate voice, or is that the Yetzirah? Is in other words because and it's the issue of, of humbleness. And then when I get that thought, is like so I'm not going to say it because really I don't want to say it. So people will say, "Oh, what a great Torah he just said over." Right? And so then I end up not saying it. And so I said, like, like, what do you do in a case like that? But I don't know, maybe, maybe that in itself, that, like, you know, the kuach that you're having, maybe it's a humbling process to do it. You know what? So let them think what they want to think. Ah. I'm, I'm going to do, do my role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you could do it. Or, like, on the moment, like, no, it's not really because I want to say this great Torah, and that's just my yates. You know, but a lot of times you have to decide on the spot. Like, it's, it's, like, it's happening very quickly. So I asked him, I asked him, and he said like this, he said, he said, this is the secret of the paraduma. He said, what, what's the paraduma? Because the ones that make everyone pure, they become tame. That's the paradox. So he said, he said like this, he said, your, your real inclination is really that you would like to give this person a bracha. But that's, that's one, the Baal Shem Tov explained when it says there's no tzaddik that doesn't sin. It says in the Tanakh, there's no tzaddik that doesn't sin. So he explained it. It doesn't mean, you know, doing like major sins. He's saying that even a tzaddik, there's going to be one billionth of ego there. Like, or one billionth I'm doing this for the world to come. You know, like this, even the, the slightest um, not perfect kavana, in a sense, is, is spoiling. So he said, and, uh, you know, I, I, I tried to, you know, listen to this. He said, if you have a choice, you should, you should say the bracha. Even if there's a tiny little bit of ego there, that's what makes you tamay. Right? You're saying the Devar Torah is your metaher, the kahal. You know, but you're metama yourself because you had a little ego there. He said, that's the secret of the paraduma. He said, but if you have a choice, you do it. You do it. He said, but you work. You constantly work on purifying your ego to the point that hopefully you, you don't hear that voice. And if you hear the voice, you just put it to the side. Put it to the side. And, it's, and so this is just, why am I saying this? In other words, because we all have this challenge to attain an inner humbleness and an outside exertion of our um, our talents in the world, our mission in the world. We need to do in the world. And for that we need a little bit of ego. But we always have to be humbling that ego as we're acting in the world. Okay, so now, because we only have like five minutes left, I want to put like what I think is what's connecting all these things together. 
And the truth is we would need a lot more time to go back now and, and examine all the different yuds and how they're playing off each, each other. And that we'll have to do next year or something. <laughs> on the higher spiral. Right, in the higher spiral. But what I think is what's connecting all these things is it's interesting that there are three parshas that have the root shalach in them. The three parshas. There is Vayishlach, Bishalach, and Shlach. All three of them have to do with Eretz Yisrael. Except this one is the, the most direct one. Vayishlach is when Yaakov is coming back into Eretz Yisrael after being gone for 20 years. And he comes to the border. And he it says, Vayishlach Malachim. He sends angels or messengers to Esav because it's time for him to come back into Eretz Yisrael. Bishalach is when Paro sends us away and we're leaving Egypt with the ultimate goal of coming to Eretz Yisrael. But this one is like, this is direct. Shalach l'chanashim, to go to Eretz Yisrael, it's time to go in and conquer it. So the connection here, obviously, this whole parsha, like, there'll be thousands of drushes this Shabbos on this parsha. Most of them will have to do with the connection to Eretz Yisrael. That's what most, most, most rabbis will pick, rightfully so. Because this parsha is all about our connection to Eretz Yisrael. In the Torah, when God is speaking about the Jewish people, He says that we're Hamaat Mikol Ha'amim. He says, God says, I don't love you because you're the greatest of the people, meaning numerous of the people. You are the Ma'at Mikol Ha'amim. You're the smallest of all the people. So Hasidus learns it over. We've seen from history that in the world population we are, I think, one-tenth of one percent of the world population. We have had such an enormous impact. It's like mind-boggling that one-tenth of one percent of the world's population could have had such a profound effect on every area of, of, of human endeavor and thought. That's what the Torah says. You're the smallest of the people. I don't love you because you're, <laughs> you're a billion people. Because you're the smallest of the people. Hasidah says what that means is because you know how to make yourself small. You know the secret of the yud. You know the secret of self-nullification, of bitol hayesh. Look at Eretz Yisrael on the map. You need a magnifying glass. You can barely see it on a globe, especially when you have one of these like globes. Like, like you need you need a magnifying glass. The word Israel, like it's to too big the for the country. Yeah, it's they too big for the country. country. It doesn't fit in the country. 
right? right. New Jersey is bigger. Yeah. California, like that's like. I think the island of Madagascar. <laughs> so it's not just the people of Eretz Yisrael, it's the land itself is so small. It's so small. That, I believe, is the secret of all the Yuds and the Tens here. Is since the Parsha is about Eretz Yisrael, That's the secret of Eretz Yisrael. But, what does Moshe say to Hashem? Yigdal na koach Hashem. That your, you, God, your power make great. So we know that we have the teaching that when Mashiach comes, remembers Shaliach with an extra Yud, I'm going to try to tie them all together. The, the holiness of Eretz Yisrael will spread to the whole world. You know, right now, it's, it's, Eretz Yisrael is like the point of the Big Bang before the Big Bang. When Mashiach comes, it will expand infinitely. But part of the secret is that, is that it's condensed. Part of the secret of Eretz Yisrael is that it is Condensed. So listen to this. It says, Yigdal na koach Hashem, the power of Hashem. So the first Rashi in the Torah says like this Why doesn't the Torah begin from Hachorosh Azelachem? Why doesn't the, the, the Torah begin from this is the first of the months? No, it's from the first mitzvah that's given to the Jewish people. Why do we need all these stories? First Rashi. So Rashi says it's in order that um, proof in court. The yeah. He brings. Yes. He sorry. He brings the verse. Koach um, maasav. The power of his deeds, meaning God's deeds, he showed to his people in order to give them an inheritance in the land. So Rashi goes on, uh, and every year I give this over because I just love this Rashi, given over a thousand years ago. He said, in the future, the nations of the world will come and say, Listimatem, you're robbers, you stole Eretz Yisrael. What are we going to say to them? So we're going to say, the same God who created heaven and earth, He gave it to them, and He took it from them and gave it to us. But what's the secret here? Why am I bringing this? The verse that Rashi brings is Koach Maasav, the power of his deeds. What's the connection with Bereshit? The first verse of Bereshit is 28 letters. It has Koach letters. And, and that's what the verse says. He shows us the power of his deeds to give us an inheritance among the nations. So that's why Moshe here says, 
says Yigdal na koach Hashem make great your power and God and Moshe says to God and we'll end with this Moshe says to God what are the what are the nations going to say they're going to say you took them out of Egypt and you didn't have the strength to bring them into the land so now when you read this it sounds like a, a six-year-olds are talking, as it were. And one is saying to the other, you're probably afraid to beat up my brother. If Only if you beat up my brother will I know that you're strong. Moshe says to God, look what the people are going to say. They're going to say you, didn't have, you weren't strong enough. That's why you should save us. Now, but what is Moshe saying? What is Moshe saying? He's saying, God, we are your shlichim in this world. If we, if we die in the desert here, what did you create the world for? What is this all about? In other words, if, you, if we fail, you fail. The people will say, if we fail, the people will say, God wasn't strong enough to bring him into the land. So what Moshe was affirming was, God, yeah, we're full of blemishes. We, we, we make mistakes left and right. But once you assigned us as your messengers in the world, you have to stick with us. So this is a connection to all of us are the shlichim. It says, Shlach lecha. Send people. Moshe, in a sense, puts it back to God and says, Okay, once you chose us, we're your shlichim. You better make sure that we, 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 we make it. So that's why we say in Slichot, we say, Asay lamancha. Asay lamancha in lo lamanenu vahoshienu. In other words, if you won't do it for our sake, do it for your sake. Because don't you want the world to turn out the way you want to? And if you don't give us help to do it, it's not going to turn out that way. So if it's not for our sake, do it for your sake. So we'll end with a bracha. Everyone should have a bracha, this parsha of this yud. We should all, we should all learn the, the secret of nullification. We should also know the secret of the big yud, of yigdal na, that we should be God's shlichim in the world. We should, every one of us has our purpose. God sent us in this world with a purpose. We need to fulfill our purpose. And so therefore we should ask God, help us. Help us fulfill that purpose. And we should be like Yoshua and Kalev. Take that Yud, that Hoshea God, and sometimes have the strength to stand up to, to powers much greater than us 
for what is right, what is good, and we should merit to see the holiness of Eretz Yisrael spread to the whole world. Amen. Amen. Amen.